Are you ready to start being visible? Well, you have come to the right place. Welcome to the Start Being Visible podcast. My name is Mildred Talabi. I've spent most of my working life mastering the art of personal branding in my career as a former journalist and communications professional and in my business, which has taken on various forms over the years. I now spend my time championing and coaching women to increase their influence, income, and impact through being visible on platforms like LinkedIn and beyond. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing with you my insights into the journey to being visible, as well as bringing you amazing, candid conversations with female leaders who have chosen to step out of the shadows and into the limelight in their work lives. Now I want you to hit the subscribe button and get ready to start your own journey to be invisible with today's episode. Well, hello, hello, good evening, and welcome to a brand new episode of Start Being Visible with me, Mildred Talabi, and we are going to get straight into today's show because this show today is a guest conversation. I have got another fascinating, awesome female leader who is visible that I want to talk to in today's segment, and we're going to talk to her together, right? If you are a woman in business or you're a professional woman and you've often wondered, how on earth should I present myself? How should I look out there in the wild world? Well, I've got somebody today who has got all the answers. Now, my guest for today's show is someone that I've actually watched on LinkedIn for a while. And I thought, this lady, she is on fire. And I need to talk to her to find out what is up because she's got so many amazing things going for her. And if you read her post on LinkedIn, you can't help but feel kind of like a, yeah, a girl power, we're going to take over the world type of vibe, (laughs) you know, on her post. Right. Her name is Samantha Harmon, and she is a former journalist and award-winning editor who transitioned into style coaching as a way to combine her love of style and passion for equality in order to support women in a professional arena. Now, today, Sam specializes in helping women in business to save time and make money using the power of their wardrobe. Now, what has all this got to do with visibility and personal branding? And how on earth do you make money through the power of your wardrobe? Well, I'm going to get some answers from Sam today. So please help me welcome to the stage, Samantha Harmon. Hey, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Long time fan of yours. Oh, that is wonderful. Sam, where I want to start with this is your tagline on LinkedIn says, I've got nothing to wear, has nothing to do with clothes. That what do you mean? You know, I get so many comments about that tagline. I think it makes people think because we see clothes as just, you know, very arbitrary right something we do every day is get dressed but actually our wardrobes are not just clothes they are the physical manifestation of how we feel about ourselves what's going on in our lives our beliefs what we've been told we can do and can't do our hopes for the future all this stuff wrapped up in what is essentially a wooden box in our bedrooms and there is a lot of information in your wardrobe so when I go into someone's wardrobe I'm kind of reading them not just looking at 
you know, this blouse goes with that skirt. I'm going to put myself on the spot because I'm assuming, as a stylist, as someone who knows about wardrobes, you can't help but read people every time you meet them through their clothes. So what is your reading of me saying today? Have I picked a good outfit? Yeah, I. you know what? You look glam. But I always think every time I see you, I'm just like, you're, yeah, I'm a big fangirl there are people on LinkedIn that I'm always like I'm such a fangirl and then when you're in my DMs I was like oh my god it's Mildred <laughs> yeah you're just really like open and friendly and it, yeah it's what obviously makes you so great on LinkedIn and makes so many people want to be connected to you Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was hoping you wouldn't tear down my, my choice of colours and all that. Is that what a stylist does, by the way? And, and and is there a difference between a stylist and I know you call yourself a style coach. difference between the two? I would say a good stylist, no, they wouldn't do that. I always love clothes, but from a very young age, I was kind of told that I did not fit into style, right? As most of us, most of us have been told that. And I really struggled with body image. There were times where like, I literally couldn't find anything to wear in the shops. I was going to my cousin's wedding and I was in the changing room literally crying because I couldn't fit into anything. And these shop assistants were laughing at me. And I hate the fact that fashion makes women feel like that because ironically, we're the ones that are being sold to. We're the customer and we should not be made to feel that way. And I have had unfortunate experiences before when I've thought that way about stylists where they've been like cute outfit type of thing and I absolutely hate that and when I did my styling training I realized that so much of the training is very practical it's about the this is your you're you're an apple you're a pear or whatever and you should wear this this and this and whilst that's all great it's really good to have that information it doesn't actually change anything because if you don't address the mindset stuff you're not going to help your client. And I've met people who work with stylists who have spent thousands of pounds on new clothes. It's a year later, they're still not wearing the clothes. And it's because we're not addressing the mindset and the beliefs behind why we feel the way that we feel. Mm. So we, we will talk about the relationship between clothes and how you feel and the mindset. But let's go back to kind of like the beginning because you did touch on your childhood and from young, you, you know, the way your relationship with clothes. But what was little Sam like? What were you? Were you this confident, outgoing person that you come across as today? Or was there something more? Uh, no, I <laughs> not at all. I actually uh, grew up on a council estate and I wanted to be a, I, I love writing, wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't know or see anyone who who was that. But my parents always told me there's nothing that anyone else can do that you like you can do whatever you put your mind to so I guess I always had that instilled in me from a very young age but clothes are really interesting one because we were poor right like we had no money to the point where sometimes there were actually holes in my clothes because we just couldn't have new stuff and that's really interesting because our identity is so wrapped up in our clothes and there are so many beliefs around you know money and stuff that we've grown up with that then influence how we dress as an adult so I have clients now who grew up in a similar environment who are making a lot of money now but find it very hard to buy things for themselves or they might go the other way like they might never have been able to have labels and stuff and they associate that with having made it so that's all they want 
it's absolutely fascinating to me how much of our belief system is actually wrapped up in what we wear as adults as as in as it is in so many things um but yeah i was very full of self-doubt to be honest because i was told from such a young age you are the word that was used to me was fat right i was constantly told i need to lose weight and so very much i thought that if i got to work in magazines then i'd have like made it because you know that's the pinnacle of beauty and fashion and everything and i worked really hard to get into magazines and i got to the hallowed halls of this particular very esteemed publisher and i looked around me and realized like everyone here feels the same way everyone here has thought that this would make them feel good about themselves and it hasn't how old were you when you uh, when you got there? Because I know you you climbed up the ladder in the editorial um, side quite young, and at twenty seven you became an a, an editor. But so at this point where you had this realization that this pathway of working in magazines wasn't going to bring you the happiness that you thought it would. How old were you then? Younger than that, it was when I was starting out. But interestingly, I really thought I wanted to work in fashion magazines, and then. I ended up working in newspapers because naively, you know, I have my thoughts on the media industry, as I'm sure we all do at the moment. I wanted to actually make a difference. And where I'd grown up has shown me that there wasn't very much justice in the world. And really, I thought that I wanted to do a job that would help make a difference. And in some ways it does. Like the best stories that I ever worked on were things where, for example, someone was going to be deported and we did this whole campaign and she ended up being able to stay here and unfortunately a few years later she actually passed away and she was she was literally the same age as me and that really affected me in that story but it was stuff like that that I really wanted to do but ironically I decided that I didn't want to work in fashion magazines because of all that I really wanted to make a difference and when I went to get my first job at a newspaper the editor at the time said to me I think you're too into fashion to be a serious journalist so it just shows you how Women particularly are constantly judged. I I didn't feel like I was good enough or, you know, pretty enough or conventional looking enough to work in magazines. But also I was being told that I was too fashion to work as a to be a serious journalist. So I always like to prove people wrong. So that's exactly what I had to from that moment. I was like, I'm going to have to prove this man wrong. He ended up promoting me yeah I get the journalism thing because that the industry and I don't think it's changed much as you know I, I trained as a journalist as well and I worked in the media for a bit I remember um I worked in the on the entertainment desk for a very 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 short period of time the 3 a.m desk in the daily mirror and we had people calling in like I saw this celebrity stumbling out of the pub and that was the story that they were writing I'm like I don't care like this is not this is not what I want to do with my life and so like, did you feel like when you made the decision, I know you intentionally shifted from fashion to more serious journalism. Was there a part of you that thought that you would never be taken seriously if you stayed in fashion throughout your career? I, I think, honestly, there was a part of me that thought I wouldn't be taken seriously in media at all, because media is quite now, it's probably actually even worse. It's really elitist. Most newspaper editors are, or most journalists actually, a friend of mine runs a charity called Press Pad and they work a lot in helping people from... Um, Olivia. 
Yeah, Olivia, yeah, Olivia. So they were with helping people from diverse backgrounds get into media because media is so elitist. And they did a survey. I mean, Olivia will have the actual stats, but it showed that the majority of well-paid journalists, journalists are from very privileged backgrounds. And I very much felt that from, you know, just doing my training at, at u- university. I'm sure a lot of people who are, you know, working class are the first person in their family to have gone to university probably feel the same sort of way. But yeah, definitely all the way through. I And that is why really it's led me to do what I do now to help women feel, you know, that they are taken seriously and they can do what they want in whatever their career is. Because I remember there was a big up, uproar when I got an editorship. I was the first female editor of this particular newspaper in 160 years so the first one ever mm-hmm. since it was made and I had all sorts of comments out and out misogyny and sexism one man cut up uh cut up an edition of the newspaper and sent it to me in a box I don't know mm-hmm. what that was about this kind of stuff still exists in media and absolutely I've thought all the way through that I have to kind of fight to be taken seriously Mm-hmm. And I'm, a, I'm, I am, you know, a white, able-bodied, cis woman. So the media it needs to change. It is not diverse mm-hmm. or it doesn't represent the people that it's supposed to represent. So tragic that after I left the media a long, long time ago, well over 15 years or so, and it's so tragic how little has changed in all that time. So this whole age of social media where everyone can kind of be journalist in a sense, has sort of leveled things a little bit in, in, in terms of the news front, but still not the traditional institutionalised media front. So, but anyway, that's the, that's the conversation for another time, yeah, right? Another day, yeah, we're coming for you, media. So, so, yeah, that's brilliant. So, but what did your fight look like? So you had to fight your way to be taken seriously. You had to fight to get to this top um, position of being the first female editor. What did that look like on a practical level? How were you fighting? Uh, through what I wear, I think, is a pretty mm-hmm. one. Obviously, work, everyone has to work hard. But I do think, looking back, I did really take my personal brand seriously. I could see that that was the way that journalism was going. And even now, journalists, uh, particularly at nationals, but even at regional level, they are marked on page views and stuff. So they are marked on having a personal brand. And I could see that's the way it was going. And I thought, it's not just enough for me to be good at editing, although I'm sure that former colleague, I'll say it myself, like there are parts of editing I absolutely hated, sub-editing, no thank you, not for me, not good at all. But the parts of being someone who had a personal brand and presence was where I, looking back, actually did really nail because I was dressing for the job I wanted and not for the job I had. And I was positioning myself as someone who could go to meetings on behalf of the company or speak on panels and that kind of thing I don't know if it's women specific but the whole good girl thing that we have where we're like if I just work really really hard then I'll be noticed and then I'll then I'll get the promotion and unfortunately that's just not how business works so we have to be a bit strategic with our personal brands and we feel that we are quite safe working in a company we only brush off our LinkedIn profile when we go into work one day and they say to us, we've had a really bad quarter, we're going to have to let you go. We think that they have loyalty to us in the same way that we have loyalty to them. And it's not true. And 
we often put a company before our own careers. Not enough people are strategic with what they're doing in terms of their personal brand and their presence. I'm with you totally on that. The whole personal branding is so key. But you you clocked onto that quite early, as you said, and you and you talked about how you dress for the part you wanted. How did you come to this realization that you had to kind of present yourself differently or act differently in order to get to where you wanted in your career? First of all, assumptions that were made. And I think it was important for me to dress in a way that made people take me seriously. Because when you are a young woman and you walk into a room full of men, they assume that you are the secretary. I mean, I don't know how many times stood next to my deputy who was a man. There were two, actually. One was younger than me and one was quite a lot older than me. And often people would assume that I was working for him. I wanted to use my wardrobe to show, actually, take me seriously. But I think I've always just had an innate love of dressing up. And unfortunately, it's something that a lot of us get out of as we get older. And actually, creativity is a really big part of the human experience. Sometimes when I say to my clients, you've got loads of clothes here, let's just spend some time playing dress up. They're like, that's nonsense. That just sounds silly, right? That just sounds like something a kid would do. But actually, in the long term, it helps your career because you find new things, you increase your confidence in being able to do it. And then you walk into the office on Monday and someone's like, I love that outfit, Susan. Mm. You look amazing. Like Susan's here to slay today. And mm-hmm. then they you more seriously. Go Susan. <laughs> so Ada has a good question that kind of follows up on that. She said, so when it comes to dressing for the job that you want versus the one you have, How should one handle a situation where dressing for the job you want seems to intimidate your managers or leaders? They're not very good managers, are they? Got to get yourself (laughs) out of there. If a manager does not ultimately want you to thrive, that is not good management. And it's much better to think strategically about you and look after yourself. And, you know, if they are slightly, they are intimidated, that's clearly a them problem but there are subtle ways of doing it after the pandemic no one really has a clue how to dress anymore right and some people are really formal some people are really casual and I know that it's really confusing for managers who have not had the training themselves in this they don't know how to talk to people about it because no one in the company is thinking that this is a big deal when actually getting dressed every day is something that is required for us to do our jobs But what you can do is be subtle. So just think about, you know, the quality of the pieces that you have or tailoring or borrow from the level above. So if at the moment you dress very smart casual, add in things that would be slightly more business casual. So invest in a really nice blazer or something that just helps people perceive you in a slightly different way. You know what I would do? if, If a manager was intimidated by me, looking for my next job or actually showing up really well for the job that's not the company that I'd want to be in it's interesting you talk about expressing yourself through clothes because for a lot of women and certainly I'm gonna say the old days which is gonna make me sound like I'm 89 or something right (laughs) you know but let's just say in earlier years certainly at the beginning of my career how addressing for a woman is kind of like the suits you know the dark colors the kind of looking like a man in a sense but just a little bit more feminine so 
there, there seems to have been a shift that has happened in the workplace. But for the woman who's still kind of thinking that if I want to be taken seriously, I need to go buy some suits and just walk around with this power look going on. What, what do you say to that? How do we get over that? I will tell you a story about someone that I worked with who was in a very serious position in financial industries. And she said to me, I'm really annoyed. And I was like, why are you annoyed? And she said, because I spent all of this money on these boring black suits and I still got mansplained to and I still got you know, looked over for a promotion. I still got paid less than my male colleagues. And if I had had the courage to wear the green suit that I actually really wanted to wear, Yes, the mansplaining might have still happened, but I may have felt more confident in myself to be able to say, no, Barry, not today, and to be able to advocate for myself to get the pay rise. I mean, we know that I think 60% of women will never ask for a pay rise or never negotiate their salary. And I've had so many conversations with women in my life about this, where they're offered a new job, and then they just like go with the offer that they have. That's that's a story for you to keep in mind when you're when you're worried about, you know, what Barry might say if you wear the green suit, because unfortunately, that situation is still going to happen. But how we kind of change the thing is to call out those situations. And when we feel more confident in ourselves, it gives us the ability to do that. So what's the connection between what we're wearing and how much we're getting paid? It's all psychological. There are studies that show that there's something called enclosed cognition. So that means that when you put on a piece of clothing, you embody the qualities of what you associate with that clothing. So let's say that you really, you know, you associate wearing a blazer with someone who is powerful and in control. Studies show that those will be the qualities that you embrace when you wear those clothes and it helps mostly in your own self-perception that's where a lot of the work is with my clients in their identity of themselves but it also helps in other people's perception of you and when we're in a very digital very busy digital world how you show up and how you're remembered is important and I have clients who slightly change the way they dress they're a bit being a bit more bolder and a bit more how they actually really want to dress and they find that they get more clients or they find that they have the confidence to raise their prices. There is a big link between what we wear and how we perform and also what we wear and how we're perceived. And if you're doing something like, for example, you want to get higher ticket clients, then don't neglect how your wardrobe plays a part in that because people will be perceiving you in a certain way based on what you're wearing. Mm-hmm. In some of your posts, you've been pretty brutal. Sites like Sheen, Shane, I, I never know how to pronounce that right, you know. Like, you know, the places that sell cheap clothes, you know. I think maybe even Primark, I've read on one of them. Because, you, um, so you can tell us why in just a second. But so, do we have to go and shop at expensive places in order to feel that we are worth? that extra cash in our business or in our career? No, we don't. And how we feel is the most important thing in our clothes. The problem isn't necessarily having access to cheaper clothing, right? There is a clear, there is a need for us to have affordable clothing. However, that shouldn't come at the cost of 
someone else. And the problem is not now necessarily where we're buying it. It's how we feel about clothes. We feel that they are a commodity. We'll buy stuff that's, you know, five pound T-shirt. And we just think, oh, well, if I wear it once, doesn't matter. It was less than a less than a cup of coffee. What does it matter? What we don't understand is that that T-shirt has an impact on not only the person who's made it, but also on the planet. You know, there are mountains of clothes shipped off to chilly parts of Africa, mountains of clothes that cannot be resold because they're so cheap and poorly made. And we currently have enough clothing on the planet for the next six generations of people. And it's I don't have children, but the thought of having children and the climate crisis really scares me. It really scares me of what kind of planet we're leaving for the next generations. So that's why it's important. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you have to go out and buy Chanel and then you'll feel better. It's it's we're doing the work on your self-belief first. And then we're thinking about your wardrobe in terms of what is best cost per wear, what makes you feel really good, and then going from there. So I would never go into someone's wardrobe and be like, chuck this all out. This is all terrible. No. Nope. I'm going to ask some questions about how that stuff came to be in their wardrobe in the first place to get them thinking about the decisions they're making. Because a lot of the stuff we buy, we buy because it's emotional plaster. Like, I've had a bad day. So I'm going to go on. ASOS have been bombarding me with emails, 20% off, 50% off that. So I'm going to go on there and buy loads of stuff. And then the dopamine hit we get from that subsides even before the stuff gets to the front door. Then we put it on, it doesn't fit properly because we haven't got the foundational knowledge as to what actually suits us, what is good on us. And then it goes in the wardrobe, hidden away, never to be seen again. Or but, or it goes in a bag for the charity shop and then we think that we're doing a good thing. So we're like, well, I've given it to a charity shop. So if I buy something and I donate it, wash my hands of that. Actually, a very small percentage of what we give to charity even gets to the charity shop. Loads of it gets shipped off onto those clothes mountains. Yes, you're educating us. You are definitely educating us on that front. You know, so and I want more of that education in a second. But let's go back to your your transition. So you're here, you're in um, journalism, you're working in the media and you're climbing pretty high. So at some point, you have this realization that actually this is not the pathway that I want for myself. I want to become a a coach that styles women. Talk to us about that transition. What was going on mentally and how did you then put it into motion on a practical level? Like a lot of people who start their own businesses, they want more freedom and ease in their lives, right? And I massively enjoyed my career in the media, but, and I've spoken to former colleagues in the media about this too I think you get a limited time because it is such a full-on job like literally you don't know what's going to happen today when you work when you work in the media you could be sent everywhere you get a call and it's 3am and you're in your pajamas and you just have to go and on the one hand that is absolutely exhilarating but also it's a path to burnout so I ended up in the pandemic extremely burned out because I was it was you know covid cycle was constant news and I got very unwell but in the back of my mind before that happened, I knew that I really wanted to do this business and it felt like a massive pipe dream because who, you know, who even is a style a stylist? That's just a hot, that's just a silly hobby. That's not a real job. But I knew that when I was going to events or meeting women online, they were asking for my help with what to wear to work. 
because I think they they saw me I had to have a personal brand because of the job I was doing they would see me wearing things and they would say I've got an interview next week can you help me pick out an outfit or I need to go to this meeting and feel confident what would you advise me to do so then I was like I'm gonna get my formal training in this so that I can help women with this because I can see it was a problem and it's a problem that no one's talking about I mean I don't know about you when I speak to women about this their experience is the same as mine no one helps us with what we're supposed to wear to work like Mm -hmm. the thing we have to do every day and no one's having this conversation so we go to work and we actually don't feel very good about ourselves and then we go to a meeting and we get you know talked over or talked down to and we don't feel like we can advocate for ourselves or we edit our emails constantly I don't want to come across as a a B word so I'll you know oh please would you mind just doing this and oh sorry about that it's actually affecting us in a much bigger way than just putting on a dress in the morning it's important and no one was talking about it and so I just decided well, I was, I'm going to talk about it then fine mm-hmm. no do this I'll have to do it myself I think part of that silence is there's a part of us um, probably for a lot of us where it's like talking about how you look you know it's not that's in the grand scale of things that's not that important because you know it's it's vanity and there's more important things to talk about or think about so we kind of pretend that we don't care that much about how we look is that what you find is is one of the issues ironically right there are companies making a lot of money out of that because we spend so much money on beauty products, on fixing p- problems that don't even exist. Like cellulite, for example, was a medical term for you know inflammation of the skin. And in the 1960s, Vogue started using it to describe the perfectly normal dimples that women and men and other people get on their skin so that their advertisers can sell us products to fix it. So the less we talk about this stuff, the more stigma there is around talking about it. And the more we tell people it's vain to care about this, the more those kind of companies win. Because on the one hand, we're saying, you know, everyone is beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But also you need to buy all this stuff to to fix problems that you don't really have. Mm. And we're still all thinking about it. That's the thing. Mm. I think women have a survey by Dove showed that women have over 60 negative thoughts a day about themselves. And that was before social media. So I I don't know what the figure would be now. Um, But those same women are then still spending hundreds, thousands of pounds on stuff they don't need. That's really sad to me. I met a woman who's in her 80s and she said to me, I'm in my 80s and I still think about losing weight every day. What are we doing? I feel that fiery passion that you have. That comes across on your post. And we're going to talk about your post. So there you are. You decide that no one's talking about this. You're like, I'm the one who's, I'm going to just talk about this. Were you kind of nervous about, one, to talk about it so openly and not be taken seriously, one. And two, it's like, did you think, well, how am I going to make money out of this? Because if it's something that people don't want to talk about openly, then how are they going to want to pay me? You know, so what? What was that thought process like for you? Yes and yes. A hundred percent yes. Um, I think, to be honest, I was kind of used to not being taken seriously or having to fight people (laughs) because, number one, I'm from Portsmouth. We love a fight. But also just in my career, the whole thing from being a kid and not, you know, having to work to get to where I was, 
I was used to get being taken or not being taken seriously and then having to fight to be taken seriously and I could see it was a this is a big passion of mine because I can see it's such a problem and one of the things that happened just before I left newspapers was that I needed a deputy editor and I knew five women who would have been amazing at that job and none of them applied for it and when I called them and said what's going on like I was expecting to see your CV here because I've got a great job that I want you to have they were saying stuff like I'm not qualified enough I need a few more years I don't think I'd be good enough at that and then I was getting CVs from men who were not as qualified as them no problem applying for the same job so I think that's why my passion isn't close it is helping women feel confident make money make good stuff happen in the world because you know I, I first of all I want people to feel free and be able to support their families first and then secondly once they have that taken care of then they can start thinking about the things they want in the world for their families for the future and then they can give to good causes or they can vote in people who actually care about the country or the world and that kind of stuff so I think that's what drives me it's not here's an outfit let's put an outfit together that's fun Mm -hmm. it's that the value piece and that is what I then talking about to make people understand the connection of, oh, this isn't just some silly woman talking about clothes. This mm-hmm. is a woman trying to help other women make money. Mm. And you talk openly about making money. That's very un-British of you, Sam. <laughs> yeah, we need to talk about it because when the average woman is retiring with £130,000 less than men, and we have the motherhood penalty and all this other. We we have to talk about money. Not talking about money just benefits the patriarchy, right? And mm-hmm. it's our conditioning. We're told that it's not right or ladylike to talk about money, but that just means that we can be paid less. It's not money means something about us, but actually it just means something about money. And if I can encourage more women to charge what they should be charging for their services then great so I want to ask you about money again I like talking about money I'm clearly not British in that sense either (laughs) you know and for the same reasons as you but um Iris has a question that I want to put to you so Iris says that she works in an environment where she's the only person of color and one of four females my style has cultural influences which stand out what is your advice for style choices or influences in the corporate space first of all I think you actually have an opportunity to help shape things and make things easier for other people like you in the workplace, right? Because someone else might be coming into that workplace and they might be really confused about what they're allowed to wear or not. So maybe there's a conversation that can happen with HR, with the company, about communicating what to wear at work and how you have buy-in as someone who works there because you have to feel comfortable and confident in what you're wearing and at the same time they have their expectations as to what people wear but because no one's having this conversation you don't know what is okay to wear and that as I've heard so many managers do you know complaining about what people are wearing to work but not actually having a conversation about it but you know it depends on your individual situation as to what you feel good and comfortable wearing to work I think a lot of people worry that if they work with me, I'll say, okay, ta-da, transformation, off you go to work tomorrow in feeling like an absolute clown, you know, wearing something that doesn't feel good to you. 
actually it's just small changes that will help build your confidence like I said I think that there is an opportunity there to actually shape things for people in the future so is it a case of not that there's a corporate way that you need to adhere to but start your choice of outfit with what feels comfortable to you first and then consider the environment is it kind of that way round as opposed to the other way which most people tackle it yeah I think better you feel the better you're going to perform at your job and obviously we have to use some discernment as to what is the general level of dress in that company the trouble with the levels of dresses and a lot of companies do not understand this is that they were written by a man called John T. Malloy in the 70s. Over 50 years ago, this man wrote a book about what women should wear to work. And it was something along the lines of what you said about masculine, like the big shoulder pads is where that came from. But also you should have small waist because you're just playing at this being a woman at work thing. We all know that your real job is to be a wife and mum. So the sooner you can get out of the workplace and get back to that, then great. That hasn't changed. Those levels of dress that companies still use is still based on those rules from over 50 years ago think how much has changed in the last over 50 years in terms of society in terms of world events in terms of the way that we even work now a lot of people are hybrid working technology all of this stuff really needs addressing and I would say it's important for you to feel comfortable in your job so that you can perform at your best so use your discernment in terms of what that means for you and it's become kind of popular to say that you don't care and that you just kind of I'll just roll out of bed I just wear a hoodie but I would like to know over a period of time how that actually makes you feel because I I don't think that it makes people feel their best definitely uh, and and I, and I guess there's different rules for working in the office and working from home in, but still in that office in terms of what you wear and how comfortable you get in that space. Is that right? Yeah, you can be comfortable and also feel good. For example, let's say that you were going to put on a scraggly old pair of pyjamas. How about instead you invest in some nice loungewear that makes you feel good? It's that there is a level of how something really makes you feel. What you wear when you're on your own is actually the most important thing because that's who you're telling yourself that you are and mm. what happens a lot is people say they don't care about what they wear when they're on their own they could, could put on any old thing from the floor drove they'd be embarrassed with their postman to see and then they're asked to do something for work like go to a presentation or go to a conference and then they feel like they have to wear something very you know corporate or a suit and they feel like an imposter and it's because every day behind closed doors they've been telling themselves you're still of the dump and then they have to put on this show of dressing well in public if you run your own business it can really affect the kind of activities you do in your day-to-day so if if you're someone who has to do for example LinkedIn live you want to do more LinkedIn lives but every day you just can't be bothered to get dressed you're going to tell yourself that you can't show up on LinkedIn live so you don't do it a week goes by you haven't done it another week goes by you haven't done it whereas you could have done it once people could have seen you they've seen the whites of your eyes really like what you're saying get in your dms and work with you difference it can make so when I started doing LinkedIn lives was just before just at the beginning of COVID actually and I remember I used to do them and I was just like I'd I'd clean up a bit you know but never like full face 
makeup, choose clothes, all of that kind of stuff. So I'm like, I'm just being real. I'm being me. And this is me, right? My sister one time, she I didn't even know she has a LinkedIn account. She tuned in and she's like, Mildred, I love what you're saying, but you need to kind of like get all glammed up and stuff. You've got a personal brand. Like I'm like, this is what I teach people. But it did kind of make me level up a little bit you know and then since then I'm much better at doing those things so you're right because how you kind of showcase yourself and you present yourself it does affect the way you feel it does affect like yeah I'm ready because I got ready (laughs) you know but um I want to talk about LinkedIn and I want to talk about the invisible on LinkedIn because this show is called Start Be Invisible so you are very visible on LinkedIn so much so that you recently got recognized as a LinkedIn top voice. Let's take a moment to celebrate that achievement. Well done. Tell us about that journey. When you started your coaching business, did you then think, right, i got to get on LinkedIn and find my clients and start posting on there and then the rest is history? Or what was that journey like for you? I could see, honestly, that LinkedIn was a place where people are in a business mindset. And I could also see that on Instagram, for example, it's very saturated with styling content. There's a lot of how to put this look together, five looks for 50 pounds, all that kind of stuff. And it's different to what I'm saying. But I felt that LinkedIn would be a good platform because I love to write as well to talk about this in a business context. And I'm not just saying it, honestly. The first place that I went was your book. I said, I was like, right, I need to get, I'm mean, serious on LinkedIn. So I got your book and I read, I read your book and I implemented what was in that book. And since then, it's just been a consistent journey of showing up, being visible and creating content around why this stuff matters. And at first I did get comments like, this isn't Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm not saying anything. I'm, I'm saying stuff in, I'm saying that this can help you, your business. So now people are getting it. Um, But yes, that's why I decided to use LinkedIn. And I kind of feel like more stylists should use LinkedIn because this is stuff that affects us every day of our working lives. LinkedIn is a copywriter's playground. If you're good at copywriting, you will really boss it on LinkedIn. So I know that you're a trained writer and but are you also a trained copywriter? Is that something you learn? And by the way, for those who don't know the difference, because people, people often say to me, Mildred, of course you're good at LinkedIn. You're a writer. I am a writer. I've been a writer since I was little, but I'm not a copywriter. It's a different skill altogether. And one that I've to learn and I'm still learning is really different. So copywriting is kind of writing that makes you do stuff. It's very, very direct. Sam is very good at it. She's very good at it. So is this something that you learned or is it just part of the natural writing skill set that you had from the beginning? Just so natural. What? <laughs> no, it, it actually, it just comes naturally to me. But I feel that that is kind of an advantage that I have. And sometimes people will say to me, oh, you know, I, I wish that I could write like that on LinkedIn. But they don't necessarily understand that I writing journalism is different to completely different to copywriting. But I do have that background in writing and I also had just I'm an airy so I just very I just can't help being passionate about over dramatic some would say my husband would say about everything it's just who I am in life it is a different skill set I mean that you can learn or you know there are fantastic copywriters who will help you yeah absolutely that there are there are definitely lots to to follow so 
visibility, the word itself, what does that mean to you? How do you describe visibility? It is, I think, knowing what you stand for, putting your stake in the ground and saying, this is me and this is what I'm saying. If you don't like it, I'm not for you, move on, but I'm going to keep on doing this consistently for the people that do. A lot of women say to me that they are worried or scared about being visible on LinkedIn. They're worried about the things that it might attract or even if they work with people, they think, oh, you know, what will Barry think of me posting on LinkedIn? But I always say to them, does Barry pay your bills? No. Is Barry ultimately in charge of your career trajectory? No. Is Barry going to shift things in the way that I know that you want to shift things because you're really passionate about something? And the answer is no. It's not necessarily being all in people's faces, but it's creating something that the people who really like what you're doing really like what you are doing. Uh, Barry really needs to mind his own Barry. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but you know, I don't even know. I'm gonna one day I'm gonna come across a Barry and he's gonna because <laughs> I just constantly on it Barry all the time. It's character <laughs> Barry. <laughs> I love it. I'm sure there's some good Barrys out there. So without Barry trolling us, how long did it take you to get some traction on LinkedIn? From the time you made the decision that you're gonna focus your time, energy, and efforts on this platform to when you started to see, I guess, the first sign of a result or that something you're doing something right and what were those signs how long did that process take you probably took quite a looking back now probably took quite a while and there's a difference between being motivated and being consistent right like motivation is one thing that we all have in the beginning of a journey but that quickly fades the consistency is what is really important and there was a lot of trial and error and people might give up after they write a post and no one likes it but it doesn't mean people aren't watching and the first signs for me were that people were talking to me about my content people who have never liked a single thing that I've ever said on LinkedIn I will see them in real life and they will say I love that post that you did or I saw this and that and that's when I realized actually people just because they're not clicking the button to say that they like it doesn't mean they're not paying attention, doesn't mean that your content isn't something that they think about. And that was a sign for me to keep going with it. But it took it took a it took a while. It takes a while. Mm. People think that you could probably just post a few things and then ta-da, like top voice. And I know there's been a lot of backlash to the whole top voice thing. But that isn't true. I think they underestimate, number one, what it actually takes to be visible because it does take something to nail your colours to the mask, say what you stand for in public Mm -hmm. and stick to it. And also stick to it in terms of consistency, especially on the days when no one likes your stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you post every day? Pretty much every day. Yeah, pretty much. If if I've got, I've always got things to say. As, (laughs) As you know, I've always got stuff to say. Pretty much, but I write my stuff when I'm in this kind of fiery mood about things. But I believe in the energy you put into something is what is going to be received in it. So if I don't feel good, I don't put pressure on myself to write stuff. Because mm-hmm. I want to give people the best experience when they come onto my content. And if I don't feel it and I'm just kind of putting stuff out just for, you know, likes, that's not good. That's not a good experience. Yeah, you have such a strong personal brand. 
You know, you have a, a solid personal brand and a strong voice. And I think that's what makes your content so captivating because we can hear you, you know, we can hear you, we can see you. And it's, and it's like, and it's one of those things with all of us, of our brands, you either going to love it or you don't. It's like, not a problem. Everyone's not going to love you. And it's okay. I think for a lot of us women, especially, it's like, we want to be liked by everybody, including Barry, <laughs> you know? So we're letting that stop us from really showing up, being visible. So how did you get over that stage of like, oh God, no one's liking my stuff and I don't know if this is resonating and finding your voice, those steps. How did you get over that to this place where you have this solid voice and solid personal brand and an audience that to go with it? I just don't care. I think, honestly, it does help coming from the journalist background because someone who's never going to be a client of mine doesn't like what I'm saying on LinkedIn. Big deal. But the first day of nursery, <laughs> the first day that I went to nursery, I was wearing a pink polka dot skirt suit and it was great and a girl came up to me and said I don't like you and I think now I know I think from that moment I just like oh right like not everyone's gonna like you it doesn't matter but I think I'm just very passionate about what I do and I think that's just that I just persevere with it and I, and if someone wants to say something I'll happily have I think it's important to have a conversation I, that's something that I learned in journalism as well you can't just say whatever you want and you know not people don't know how to have a civilized conversation anymore I think that's important free speech but I think if you've come onto my content and you don't like it you can just scroll by you don't have to tell me that you don't like me it, it's all good like, there are days where I really don't like myself so you're not telling me anything Anything you're saying to me, Barry, I've said a million times to myself. So most people aren't thinking about you, though. That's the thing. We all worry about what will people think if I wear this? What will people think if I say that? They're not, no offense, they're not thinking about you. Because mm -hmm. every, every negative thought you have about yourself, they have those about themselves too. They're only ever like reflecting to you what it is that they think about themselves, even when they're being mean. That's what it is. So really, next time that you're worried, what does what what will someone think? 99.99% of people won't think anything. They don't care. Absolutely. I can totally second that. And and as we're running up, two final questions. This last one on visibility. What would you say is the greatest impact that being invisible has had on your business, on your career, on your personal life? Well, for my business, I now have a business where I love what I do every day and I know that it helps people. And that's probably, that's why people run their own businesses, right? They start their own business because they actually ultimately want to help. They want to have time freedom, but they also have something they really want to help other people with. So when I get, not even clients, because, you know, I work with my clients. I love my clients. I love the results they get. When I get a message from someone who I have never spoken to before, who has never liked anything that I've put out, saying to me, thank you for X, Y, Z, that's when I think this is why it's worth it. I love that. Now, those messages are, are awesome. And they tend to come at just the right time, isn't it? When you're feeling like, 
Oh, I'm such a loser. <laughs> I'm done with LinkedIn. I'm done with everyone. It happens a lot in my house because so I'm very dramatic. I love it. That is the nature of business. And speaking of the nature of business, I know you have your signature program. And as we run up, it's called Own the Room. I believe that's correct. And I just love the title because it, it says what it does. You know, you're going to teach us how to own the room. So what top tips can you leave us with about how we can own the room today, the next environment that we enter as women, as mostly women listening to this? And then finally, how can we find out more about that program and what else you're doing to help us with our style? Here's something you can do. Go into your wardrobe and get rid of everything that doesn't make you feel good because I'm, there will be stuff in there. I promise you, people underestimate how much stuff they have in their wardrobes. Anything that makes you feel guilty, makes you feel bad, that you've never worn, that you're holding on to like that, what you're doing is actually holding away the things that is that you say that you want. You have to get rid of that stuff. So that's one thing that you can do right now, because probably as you're listening to this, you know there's something in your wardrobe just like that. Go in there, get it, remove it from your life. It will it will change things for you because you're changing the energy because every time that you walk past your wardrobe there's something in there that's telling you you're a mess you can't fit into me you're a terrible person you should feel guilty about spending money on this that's what's happening when you hold on to that stuff so you have to get get rid of that would be number one thing to do right now but women just hold on to so much stuff and your wardrobe should be a place that makes you feel joy And for most women, it doesn't. It makes them feel stressed or guilty or ashamed. And actually, it should be a place of joy. Just what I like to do sometimes is think about 90-year-old me. And I think, what would she say right now if she knew that I was here saying, I can't wear that because X, Y, Z. She'd be like, this is the best you're ever going to look, okay? Put it on and wear it. That's what she'd say to you. If your wardrobe is metaphorically the room here and you aren't owning it, that's just a metaphor for what else is happening in your life and your business. So how can we own the room with you, Sam? What are you up to? What are your programs? How do we get hold of you for more? Come own the room with me. My program, the second round of Own the Room starts next week. And you can find out more on my LinkedIn profile. It's eight weeks and I take you through All of the foundational stuff that no one ever tells us about style, but we just feel like we're expected to know. And that's why we end up with wardrobes that don't actually serve us because none of it fit. And then we tell ourselves, you know, my jeans don't fit because it's a me problem. I just need to lose weight. Actually, you might just be wearing the wrong style of jeans to your body shape. That's all that is. Like, let's just change the jeans, not your body. So it takes you through that, takes you through some of the mindset stuff that I do with my clients, the personal branding kind of stuff that we do, all of that is in that program. So you can come and find out more about it on my profile. Just come and have a chat. I love chatting, as you can tell. <laughs> this has been awesome. Honestly, I can chat to you for so much longer. You're so full of joy and full of like interesting stuff about style. And of course, I've learned some stuff and I will go and look at my wardrobe this week. When a video of you throwing something out the window. Yeah, I will do that. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, but also for what you do, because like I said, not just saying it, I literally bought your book, read the book, implemented what was in the book, and it's helped me. So 
thank you, really. But we do have to end today's session. So I want to take a second to thank you, everybody who tuned in tonight. If you do want to get hold of Sam, please do go check her out on LinkedIn, where you can find links to her website, the Owner Room program, and everything else that she does. And I'll see you back here next Wednesday for another awesome episode of Start Being Visible. All right. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Start Be Invisible podcast with me, Mildred Talavi. If you're a female leader or a woman in business and you're ready to start your own journey to be invisible on LinkedIn and beyond, get in touch with me via LinkedIn or reach out to me through my website at startbeinvisible.com. Now, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your way out and I'll see you next week for another five episodes.